welcome back to I Talk Shit and Read. This is Ro, and today I am bringing you an interview from debut author C.L. Clark about their upcoming epic fantasy release named The Unbroken. This book is a military political fantasy that centers a constricted soldier returning to her homeland and an imperial princess in search of a path to taking back her throne. I hope you enjoy my conversation with C.L. Clark. This is one of my most favorite books so far this year. And, well, there's a new author that you should be adding to your reading lists. Enjoy. I got a copy just randomly in the mail of your arc from Orbit. And I did not know that I got a copy of your book in the mail because one of my neighbors stole it. And it was very popular because I got the package opened with a sticky note going, oh, (laughs) I was like, this ghetto. I was like, this might be the ghettoest thing ever. You returned my package after you clearly read my book. (laughs) So you're very- They really read it. They read it. They read it cover to cover. I'm like, you could tell the spine was like, the book was open. I was like, well, all right. Well, all right. So yeah, but I had also gotten told about the arc. So I downloaded the arc and I devoured the arc. And I think I've read this thing four times by now. I really like this book. I really like The Unbroken. I don't think I've read anything like it. Look, I've read some of your other stories um, and I've really been interested in kind of like the slow evolution of the way that you work and the way that your voice is developed. So I was really curious Mm -hmm. about how you came to the concept of The Unbroken. Because, you know, that's a really small question that can be answered in less than three words. Less than three? No, take um, your time. I'll take all the words. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I kind of like the challenge of it. I don't know. Like, I think less than three, it would be like outside homework. Okay. So The Unbroken came about, I was in college, undergrad, and I was in a few classes at the exact same time, all in the same semester. And one was for my French degree side, and it was Francophone African Literature. And so basically we were just reading literature from anywhere France had touched in Africa. So that included North Africa, but wasn't limited to like there was there were stories from Senegal and as well as like Algeria and uh, Morocco and Tunisia. And then my other class was an English lit class and we were just studying like post-colonial literary theory and Then the third class was actually an independent study that I was doing with one of my favorite professors. And it was just, I really wanted to to know, I wanted to study when and how and why women were allowed to be violent in fantasy. And so my texts and my self-directed texts in that class were everything from like Xena to, uh, what's that Christian Kishore book, Graceling all the way to like Chronicles of Narnia with Susan and Lucy getting their tiny sword and their bow or tiny knife really and bow. In general, as a very angry human, I mean, I'm not angry, angry, but I'm angry, you know what I mean? I do. I run on, I run on rage and pure will. So I understand. So I like, I would like to fight and I don't, I never understood why we weren't supposed to fight uh, based on a, an assigned pair of genitals. And yeah, so those are the three classes I was, I was studying and um, they all just kind of like into this scene that I kept, I would close my eyes and just see this thing that I wanted to write, which was a conscripted soldier, someone who thrived on violence and like was not ashamed of that aspect of herself. Uh, but she was fighting the wrong people. She was executing the wrong people 
she did not think so, but obviously, if you read the Unbroken, you will see uh right. see how things go from there oh no we're gonna tap dance very very carefully around spoilers because i i really want people to read this book and you're also now a poster child for why you go to college and study random things and then come together and figure out how they be can become the thing that it you know fuels your passion because i wish i had done my independent study as well as you did you found a way to put <laughs> into your independent study and I'm, I'm, I'm now, I bow down to your, your greater ability to, con to convince your teachers <laughs> to let you study what you want. I love it. It was actually a little bit more complicated than that even. Like I, because I, um, I was in creative writing classes as well, mm -hmm. but my teachers, for the most part, my writing teachers wanted me to write realism. And so I did. And I mean, it was fine. It wasn't the worst thing ever, but I didn't even know that there was really a short fiction market in genre until much, much later, too late. <laughs> well, not too late, but I yeah. wish it could have been sooner, you know? And so this teacher was actually one of the few who was like, genre, yeah. Her young adults and children's literature is her, her specialty. And so she had plenty of fantasy and stuff. And she was one of the first people to like, like she's also, a, she was a queer professor and she was like, looked at me and was like, you know what you need, honey, you need. And then she like shoved some Octavia Butler at me. <laughs> and so, and you know, you always need it. you always need that professor. It kind of worked out really well. So when I read a, a book like The Unbroken and you opened up with such a vivid description of a place that does not exist, that I was like, well, now I need the map for this. Are they going to make a map? I need are they making you a map? Because I would like it. Uh, the map is available to look at now, actually. I mean, I that's my first sign that this might be something that engages me on multiple levels. The opening of this book kind of opened in a world that by the time you finished the first pat paragraph felt really tangible. You felt like you had a, a at least a basic understanding that you were dealing with someone who was coming back to a homeland that no longer felt like it was their home. Because as you said, this is a constricted soldier and you find out very quickly that she's taken from her home along with another group of children at a very young age, like under the age of 10, I believe she was five. And there aren't that many books where when you open it, you just kind of get this really big feeling like I'm going to get to explore this entire world along with this character. But you also immediately put them into a fight, which, thank you, um, you know, mayhem <laughs> right out the gate. I'm a big fan of under five pages, somebody is fighting and there may in fact be a body somewhere. I am, I am a big fan. How did you decide how you were going to blend opening up the world building, but also starting immediately with kind of having a dynamic and kinetic character? Honestly, the intro was a source of great consternation. For a long time, actually. I got a lot of feedback as I ran into people all over the world over the last several years. Critique groups that didn't like the original intro, which was everybody getting off the ship and sort of walking to the hanging. Nobody has to know what it's for, but whatever, there's a hanging. Um, <laughs> and that people didn't like, even though I was trying to sort of let people get to know the characters. And eventually I cut that part off and we just start at the hanging. And I got that polished up real nice. And I had a lot of cool people say, this is like this, this, this five pages, mm, sexy, publishable, go with it. And then things sort of just, you know, like petered off after that. But then other people would be like, this is too much. There's too many names, too much stuff. And I generally... I don't really care for the critique that there's too many names, too many weird things, because that happens. Like, things have names. 
and I can flip back. Like, I'll, if I get confused, I flip back. But I would rather personally know the names of people or titles or whatever, and even locations, and just have the repetition of them with like nice signposts or whatever. Teach me what I'm supposed to know about them than just to be thrown in with like only three proper names per page or whatever advice someone might give you. Um, that felt very specific just... in the advice that someone might have given you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm... Mm-hmm. All I'm saying is that it's fantasy. It's, you know, it's going to do what it's going to do. It's it's a, what I don't remember what they call it. It's a, one of, just one of those things of the genre. I appreciated it because one, the way you did it, it felt natural. It felt necessary. It's like, you told me where we are. You told me the names of things. You also made it very clear that this isn't something that's just overlaid on a world that I would recognize in a way that I should be able to recognize it. And I think to a certain extent, a part of the conceit comes from the fact that people think that they can fill in the blanks with assumptions of like, you know, from even if you're writing in a fully fantasy world and it's second world or whatever, they still think that they can take like a contemporary base and (laughs) fill in type of uh, assumptions off what this means or where it is like the fact that mm-hmm. you not only put the word of what this called in there you actually put the pronunciation marks and it's i was like i could think i might actually be able to say that word out loud if i had to i'm not gonna try <laughs> but i might be able to and also it becomes more important later when you make it clear that this is a character who's coming home but doesn't know this place so you know, when you're building a city that clearly just because I'm a, I will flip back in a minute. I'm I'm fine with flipping back. I like to make sure sometimes I do it just for reference, which is how I ended up reading your book so many times because I'd go to put a sticky note somewhere and I'd remember something and go back to it. And then I'd end up reading the next passage and then it'd be too. I'm like, I don't reread four chapters. I'm supposed to be preparing for this. I don't read 145 pages again. But that's. <laughs> But that's also an indicator like this story moves even when it it doesn't ever feel um, cumbersome or overly dense as um, some of the golden age you swear they made these tropes do. So it still feels like it moves. The people feel connected and they feel real and you give not just descriptions of places and things, but they're rooted in emotion. So I think I might have been I think I might have thought it was a a little too abrupt if you had jumped right to the scene where there's a hanging i mm-hmm. i thought that was a, a an amazing way and an amazing thing to move into after you mm. gave me this sense that you know they're coming and it's a port city and uh you know all things being equal you're talking about a place that's been conquered and constricted not only for its people but its goods and services mm-hmm. available so to know mm-hmm. immediately that there's value just in this land, that there's, there's, those things seem important, especially when you get later and you meet the other character who is also of importance, the princess. Mm -hmm. And I mean, kudos, thank you for listening and (laughs) listening to the advice. If I'm going to be completely honest here, though, I have to say that, so I auditioned or whatever for my agent and my editor with the hanging scene first. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until one of the last revisions with my editor and she was like, we need something else at the beginning. This still isn't. And I was like, well, fine, we'll go back and we'll put this thing here. And it just, it felt really good because I had been fighting it. Like I, I like 
part of me kept thinking, you know, I could fix a lot of the problems if I had an extra chapter in front, but I didn't want to take away a couple things. Like I had a banger first line that worked for the hanging scene, but it didn't really work with the others, so it's gone now. And um, there was just a sort of immediacy. But if you say that it, it, you like going into it better than just like abruptly starting with it, then I'll take that. You didn't lose your sense of immediacy. I actually feel like you built to it, like the tension builds quickly, but it's solid. Like, like I was fully invested by the time someone smacked first face first into a camel. And I like, <laughs> <laughs> like for real, it's, it's that it's like, so you didn't lose that sense of immediacy. It felt like you put a pen on a place and said, we are here, you know, and to feel like the start of a book is already given me like, like it's, Oh, Oh, okay. We're here. So there's this sensibility of where you have this character where you know that they have depths and you know they have these things going on, but there's just slight disassociation between something that's going on with them cognitively and where they are when they get somewhere. And the fact that you built that in and then you kind of broke that with literally having them run into something was brilliant. I don't care. I'll say it. I mean, take take yes. I will give it to you. Because, <laughs> because it's something you usually only get cinematically. And I could see it, mm -hmm. and I'm 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 a semi-visual reader, so you mm -hmm. actually have to really kick kick it really in before I get a full picture. Otherwise, my brain just starts mm -hmm. building its own world from your words, and then I realize later it's probably not what anything looks like. I probably ignored <laughs> a lot of your descriptions and supplanted them, but I never lost I never lost the world you were building from the very first word. So to have that kind of disassociative cognitive dissonance with a character who should be feeling that way because they have massively suppressed trauma. Mm -hmm. And then for you to bring them in and then immediately introduce us, I'm like, oh, oh, she works for, and then she just, oh, <laughs> right, you see what I mean? And like, so yeah, you laid a nice little trap and hooked my foot and pulled me in the air. And I'm like, well, I'm gonna just swing here and watch what happens because now I'm stuck, I need to know. So yeah, it, it, it works really well. And I, and I will have to say, it's something that is generally not done when it becomes apparent that the lead main character is non-white. You, you just don't get that. People want to lead with their trauma. People would have lingered on the disassociativeness that she was going into. And you used it to orient us in place and time and her emotional feeling, but then you immediately told us who she was in a completely different way. So for you to come in with this character who's confident, who's rooted, who's made choices about who she's gonna be and is aware of her circumstances and what that means. And then you immediately juxtapose it with someone else who's in her unit, who's also conscious mm -hmm. and aware and is making choices about who they wanna be. And mm -hmm. then you add this other person who's conscious and aware of these <laughs> other two people and it's like, yeah, this could be a problem. But then you all have them come together and they like they don't have a hive mind. This is indoctrination. But I don't feel like it was Stockholm Syndrome because it wasn't like anybody was mindless. And that's usually how characters like this would be treated, mm -hmm. you know. So for everybody to feel affirmative, everybody to feel present and aware and ne necessary, yeah. that worked. And then I'm glad. I'm so glad. Yeah. But and and. <laughs> And then to get to the part where I'm rereading now, because I'm not gonna lie, I did. I got up at nine o'clock this morning to prepare. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna read 200. I'm gonna read this book again. I already know it. But where I am right now, it's kind of calling back because you also layered really smartly a mystery, uh, raveled in court intrigue, which is rude. It's so rude. <laughs> 
I was like, I'm, I'm like, okay, political war and like post-colonialism and there'll probably be an uprising. And then I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, this is not, there is magic. Before, just wait till book two. I swear to God, if they don't send me an arc, I'm walking to New York. I'm just telling you right now. I know where Ellen, I know where to find Ellen. I'll find Angie. Somebody will give me a book. But I sounded just a little crazy and I heard it. Mm, I might cut that out. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right now, this book is hella relevant, but not in one of those kind of ways that feels white media pandering. I really don't know any other way to say it right now, especially in America. Like everybody wants to talk about, oh, it's so very now. No, this book feels like a conversation that we got invited into that's probably 45 minutes in when we walk in the door. And I really appreciated that because um, I, I'm, I'm tired of stories where they feel like we need to see someone dragged through the miasma of everything going on before they get to be affirmative. So to have the character actually say, here's another person looking at me assessingly, you know, to, to, to get that line of the recognition and the acknowledgement of a main character who is not free in the mm -hmm. moment that they recognize, here's another person who is looking for their way to figure out how they can use me. Cause you can't own anything when you don't mm -hmm. own yourself. And I was like, see, I'm gonna have 45 t-shirts in quotes and quotes. <laughs> Uh, but for that still to be happening, first of all, really early in the action for how you, I like, I kept every time I thought I knew where this story was going and how this story was going to play out. I, you know, you lied to me. And I was like, that's, we just, I thought we were going right. <laughs> we're not in, we made a U-turn. I don't. Okay. I'm gonna just let this do what it do. <laughs> And I mean, sometimes people make U-turns. I wanted to show that one big time. <laughs> yes. But how often do we really affirmatively get that in our main characters? It's almost always a side character who ends up on a side quest who then comes and drags somebody down a side street. So technically they didn't, you know, double back. But there are true U-turns of purpose, of thought, of motivation in here. I think I like these characters because the two sides of pragmatism at play, given that they're both at women, we mm -hmm. also don't generally get that you know they're not just generally when do women get to fight there's always mm -hmm. this sense of helplessness even when someone makes a decision that seems inevitable and given that you've given the princess a very very obvious upfront physical I don't want to call it a handicap because anybody who walks around with a cane with a rapier and kick my ass is not really you know not really the word I want to say, but you have someone who has something that immediately people will look at them and will start thinking about the things that they can't do and um, mm -hmm. th start thinking about the ways that they can't be and that they don't work. And then mm -hmm. for you to immediately pull us into this person's mind and see how they work. And I was like, this Machiavellian little female. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I was like, so the juxtaposition between somebody who's had to settle in and become comfortable with parts of the personality that most women don't and a certain type of rational of, of behavior, clearly be a leader, but not feel like they're properly respected in the way that they hope. Those are not usually the motions that people lead into or lean into for leaders in a military capacity without it then turning into a fatal weakness that you know gets sees them stabbed in the back or pushed over a <laughs> rampart or some other some ridiculous thing that would totally never happen but they think works <laughs> if they make it a girl so for you to you're laughing but am i lying <laughs> <laughs> i just i mean am i lying 
person i'm getting means i really need the second book but but i don't i don't know so when you were making the decisions about the personality types that you wanted your two main characters to have i know mm. i've told you how i'm seeing them and how the story is going how were you hoping people would receive them or what were you hoping would be conveyed in your work a couple different things i mean i definitely wanted them to both be like back to that independent study, I wanted them to both be violent women. And um, at one point, General Kantik and the apostate, they also had point of views. And so it was just this sort of array of like ruthless women who were quite happy to kill in one way or another, whether it's magic or with an army or with the full weight of an empire or just like a single gun or a knife, like different levels of power and different kinds of power, but that was kind of what I was trying to bring to bear. But at the same time, I wanted them to be multifaceted in that. So like the apostate was also the teacher. She taught the kids and the general also like taught the soldiers, taught the conscripts and was a, a war hero to the empire anyway, uh, <laughs> war criminal to everybody else. Right? I, was like, I mean, <laughs> um, you know, tomato, tomato. Um, <laughs> I, I was like, no, so, um, I'm scared of you. it was really, yeah, it was really about showing that normal people have the capacity for violence, even a certain character who, you know, would in any other case be considered a pacifist until she's not like we have, we all have a potential for violence, no matter what gender. And, uh, and no matter what other capacities for kindness and love we might have, um, it exists. It's not like, and so I wanted to show how different personalities might manifest that violence and what reasons um, that violence might come out. And, you know, a little bit of magic here, a little bit of gunfight, whatever. This is going to sound terrible. I mean, it's going to be on brand, but it might sound terrible. Nobody in here feels like they only can do violence in service of the protection of someone else. Like, I like the fact... Yes! Yes! I, I really, really like that. Like, I was like, I, ha I have been accused of frequently having a villain agenda and forgetting that I'm not supposed to root for certain people and characters, but... um. This is the first time that I didn't feel conflicted in like picking a side and picking a loyalty, but I also felt conflicted about the things that that person had to do to stay alive in order for them to get to the end of the book for me to be justified and feel vindicated. And um, mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people reading this book, that's going to be very refreshing. When you were blending the philosophies that you wanted to make up the underpinnings of what was driving this empire, you know, what were some of the influences, the driving forces behind that? As far as the personal philosophies, I, I mean, I can't point to like a academic philosophy type thing, but I, you know, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm a, a black kid from America who went to private school, Catholic school in like parts of elementary school, but then public school and then private school in Europe and then like university and like public school university back in the U.S. and like that puts you know, it puts you in a sort of middle position that is very often talked about in colonial regimes. Like uh, Sid Jane actually wrote a really good essay. I, I don't know if I'm saying his last name right, um, but he wrote a really good essay in um, 
uncanny, I think it was, about British colonialism in India and some of those like lingering repercussions. And one of the British colonialists, the statement he had made regarding Indian citizens was that they wanted to create this middle caste that could translate between British people and like the lower Indian classes who hadn't had this vaunted British education. And so that's something that feels very much like a lived experience in some ways. Um, but also I know a lot, I know a lot of people like that. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's really hard actually, if you're a person of color who lives in the West, you are probably in your colonialist place. Like, if you are living somewhere and you are not white and you live in Europe or you live in America, you there's a good chance that you are under a white ruling party. And if you are not white, then somehow you got there for some reason, right? So I think that between that and I have friends of various, various um, levels of generation removed from wherever their homeland, their ancestral lands might be. So, you know, diaspora talks constantly, and then, of course, like just reading literature from immigrants and diaspora folks all over the place, not just in like America, but in Europe and uh, people who have gone back home and written about their experiences trying to rejoin someplace that they left or someplace that their parents or grandparents left. Just those kinds of difficulties, like so, so much of it was just, I don't know, reading and talking and paying attention. As you start to slowly unroll the language of the homeland and what words mean and you discover like I think there's one moment where she's in a bookstore and she was asked what did they teach you and she was a she was pissed proud of <laughs> <laughs> I was like well that felt a little visceral reaction-y from me but she's very proud of the things that she learned and that she had managed to succeed and a part of it is because mm -hmm. she knew it was hard fought you know and she does not like the reminder of what it cost her, what had to be sacrificed in order for her to persevere and succeed. And then you hear what her compatriots in the sands. And I, and I was like, you came up with words that are eventually going to be problems for me because I just don't like calling them that. And that's what they're known. And it was a nice touch because I was like, shit. Because I'm like, shit, this is like, and I was like, this is a pejorative. And how am I supposed to explain it to someone now? I don't like saying this word because I know what they mean by it. And the, the way you blended those, like those conflicting feelings, not only into what you as the reader get, but into what you built for the story. That's why I said everything you said sounds, you know, very marvelous. But I'm sitting here, I was like, this is what happens when you just kind of sit, observe and talk to people because it's not fair. Thank you. I'm. I mean, yeah. I, like I said, I, I read. I read some books. Um, uh, many of them, like, like you know, people's experiences. Like, like in my francophone lit class, I was reading books from Algerian authors who were writing about. I mean, like even on the nonfiction side, you know, they were writing about what it meant to them to be writing in France for an audience that would most likely be more French than their own people who maybe didn't read the same amount in French or this to the same level and stuff like that. And, and other authors have written about the, the language mm -hmm. shift to be writing in a, a mainstream European language that maybe their family will never even be able to read, stuff like that. 
Well, it translates. I think it's going to click for people who code switch to go to work. I think it's going to click for people whose parents, maybe they're from the South, but they moved out West or they moved up North and then like they went, the kids went home or they went to school down South. I still think the way that you built this and the narrative experience that you gave and the violence, I mean, cause sometimes you really just want to stab somebody mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not have to apologize for it later. Cause you're not wrong. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's going to I think it's going to click and I think it's going to resonate. Ideologically speaking, I think it's going to sit in a place that it's going to make people have to recognize a different kind of cognitive dissonance and their own arrogance. So when you're reading a book and you've got this person who now has no game face, and I mean that literally, like if you can see her face, you can get catch her feelings if you catch her in the right mood. And I and I love it because this is the person who now has to learn how to take that internal fortitude they built to be able to do military strategy and keep a core group of people and themselves alive and has to now turn this in a way that it's outward when that's never been their bag. It, it's, a, it's a very unique journey to see someone go on. And that's what I meant when I said you built a mystery and it kind of was more multi-layered mm. in a way than, I don't know if you, you might not have intended it, but it... I mean, <laughs> All the things that you say that you heard, that you process, the, the the way that they have now synthesized into your book. I was like, yeah, this, I'm not messing with you. On multiple <laughs> levels, I'm like, could probably kill me. And if not kill me, would know how to kill me. And then could probably, nope. Nope, we have to be friends. But um, yeah, I don't need to kill anybody right now. It's fine. Especially not you. We're good. We're see, good. See, I caught the I caught the caveat right now. I heard it. Well, I don't know. That was, I don't need to kill anyone right now. Right, right okay. now. But see, there are people I might need to kill later, but we, all have we might need to edit this out. We got to edit this out. I mean, <laughs> this is where I give my standard MTR disclaimer where we are not, in fact, encouraging the murder, nor are we giving you lessons on how to do the murder. I have inadvertently, upon occasion, deconstructed a theory that someone has had about a plot and showed all the plot holes and then realized later that I had very, very, very skillfully told someone how to, in fact, get away with that crime. So we don't have to edit it out. Everyone is very used to me accidentally traveling down the lane of, she gonna kill somebody one day. I'm not. And if I do, you'll never know. It's fine. But, you know, we're good now. We're all here. But even, okay, so have you met Pierce Brown? No, I've not actually. We need to fix that. Y'all need to be friends, really. (laughs) There's a way that you both synthesize from a philosophical point of view into genre and fantasy and then blend it together. Now, obviously, he went sci-fi, you went more, you know, blood magic fantasy, um, you know, great. But you're both upsetting empires. And uh, there's there's just just this this kind of tangibleness to the way that you decide to take someone on a journey. Y'all need to be friends. Really? (laughs) We need to make that happen. One, because I would like you now both to write me a screenplay, because I would like to see what you do in a visual medium. (laughs) It's about me, really, and my needs as an audience member. If you can get somebody to do, to option The Unbroken, I'm here, I'm there, I'm ready, let's go. Yeah, I, I was like, I'm sitting here trying to fan cast this. I was like, I don't know anyone who has arms or biceps that are impressive enough to be this character, but I know about five people that if we put them in tense training right now, maybe like we could get, get there. ready like just the one line where you were like you know your arms are just too delicious to have them covered up by an army coat i was like this is what i live for just that touch of thirst thank you 
like everything felt real. It felt like a real journey. It felt like all these different moments and everything had momentum. And I don't often get to main characters where the author is clearly writing about someone who's queer, but doesn't feel like they need to give me this deep explanation of queerness. They simply let the people be and they let them exist and they let those relationships open. And then you just end up shipping and trying to figure out if there's a way to make a triad happen because you want everybody to be happy. And I was like, see, this is I'm a mm-hmm. <laughs> like I said, book two. Okay. Book two, just I mean, see what's up. See I'm what's. I don't know. I don't. You said that little caveat. You want everybody to be happy. Okay. So I don't yeah. know if anything's gonna fix okay. this. Uh, <laughs> happiness is relative and I always like to leave my authors who I adore their work the freedom to kill maim, hurt, harm or emotionally damaged where they need to to see fit for the story as long as it isn't <laughs> like you know I don't need people not to be villains I'm just saying I was like as long as you give me a reason for why they did it and it could simply be because they wanted to do the murder I'm, I'm, I'm easy to please on this point but that's the thing you get invested with so many characters here that even as you see something spiraling and unraveling in a way that's ultimately going to lead probably to someone dying or at least to a betrayal that you're hoping is not going to happen. Like right up into mm-hmm. the moment to the thing you're pretty sure is going to happen, happens, you still hold out that small kernel of hope that maybe there'll be this other thing. So even when it gets dashed, you're still excited because of the way that your hopes were dashed. And I... <laughs> And there aren't that many books, especially when you're talking about a world that is clearly overtly dealing with colonialism and a conquered country and a rebellion and revolution. For you to actually still be happy at the way that the story unfolded, you're like, I'm not going to get what I want, but the journey was amazing. So you built an entire story arc and a narrative that leaves itself open to a second book. But if people are foolish enough to stop after this one, I don't know why you would. And I forbid you to. <laughs> they still got a complete story. And you you never start sequel setting up. You don't start you sequel bait. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but I never felt like Maybe you, a little bit. You, maybe. Again, with the self-deprecation. I mean, really? I love this. <laughs> but like you never abandon finishing this story because you knew there was another one that had to come. And that's another thing that generally doesn't hold all the way through for genre unless it's science fiction because i think that's because they know that there's a chance they don't get to come back but um (laughs) i mean i think that is a thing that's kind of like a it's a a taught truism advice thing uh in forums nowadays is that like don't don't write with three books or 10 books or 50 books in mind um sell them on one and you're supposed to phrase it as like a standalone with sequel potential. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that kind of influenced, I mean, I always knew this is where I wanted to end the book because um, it is like, it does make sense, but I could, I could see other story realms where um, this was just like the first like three quarters of book one. And then we started with the, you know, yeah. Yeah, but see, as a, <laughs> as a reader, getting a well-defined story and getting characters that are worth investing in, no one is a caricature, no one feels light. Even the ones that you know aren't going to be there very long or who only, that are only NPC light, so to speak. You know, they're a side quest, maybe. Um, <laughs> no one felt like they were filler. Nothing felt like it was non-essential. 
I think that you let a particular captain go undamaged longer than I would have liked. <laughs> but that's just I, Yeah, maybe. He needed to die. <laughs> and at least he needed to be maimed so many times. I do think that I did not, there was not maybe enough righteous stabbing in the book. I ha- I, if I have any regret, maybe that is it. <laughs> <laughs> Even just the idea of the way that you use certain threats of violence that can really are only generally in a wartime setting or in a military setting lobbied against women openly, because we clearly know that they can be lobbied against men as well. Violence is violence. But the way that you use them in this story, like the, the sheer threat or like the implication that you always tied them to some other machination that was going on, or you tied them to a conflict of identity. Like there's a scene in the cell where the person said that you have fun. He's like, you know, best not to mix. I threw the book. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> I threw the book. I had a little rage fit and then I picked it up and I had realized what you had done. And I was like, oh, oh, that's, that's rather... That's rather masterfully got me all pissed off. <laughs> like, I'm like, you know, I'm reading the book, like pulling the tension out of my neck going, no, no, you did not. But it was so perfectly done because the, the, the part that was happening with the main character wasn't about the actual threat of physical violence. It was about the implications that were contained within the conversation between these two trash ass men who both should be set on fire. And that the character's concern was about her people and this thing that she wanted to have happen because of a sacrifice that had been made on her behalf. So creating that kind of dynamic energy and using what in any book that probably would have, if a man had been writing these characters and even if they had a lead main character who was a woman, that would have actually been the threat that happened when this person was in a position of helplessness was it was really well done. It's hard to write around those ideas and those concepts about how women get used or can be abused so when you were figuring out how you wanted to layer those into your story how did that how did that work out or how what was the thought process i'm actually like so i was, I was i've been interested in war literature of for a while for many many reasons but in grad school i was in doing a degree in creative writing but it was it was also like just in the English department, so it had its literature side as well. And so one of the classes I took was about war literature, like war stories, essentially. And it it ran a large, a wide gamut, um, and lots of different perspectives. The teacher was amazing, and we all kind of got our chance to do presentations on our own our own different war narratives. We got to sort of independent study our way into different war narratives and initially i thought i was going in with fantasy i actually went into the war narrative of the fitness industry but that's a different story but somebody else in the class did the war narrative of sexual violence and in so many of the texts that we actually read for the class that were already on the syllabus there were if they were by women that was always present and you know part of it is patriarchal societies, but it was so consistent regardless of the perspective, regardless of where the woman was, whether she was a soldier or a civilian. And so it was something that I knew was going to be there. I didn't, I knew I didn't want it like on the page, like this is happening right now type situation. But yeah, I think that was, that was part of it. It's just knowing that it's, it's an important aspect of war literature, war narratives that I wanted to see how it was enacted and 
what ways it could be used as well as not like what ways the narrative like the plot device could be used but ways uh the coercion could be used or ways it was used as a threat to get people to fall in line and then you couple that with how it was used in colonialism and slavery as a prodding sort of you know like a go to keep people in line that kind of over your head threat at the same time because as far as i could make it because obviously i am i live in this world but i was trying to make a sort of gender parody situation in this world just like it's a queer norm world so part of it was also just thinking about how would that play out when in theory there is equality across all genders and what would those what what shape would those threats take is it like a personal vendetta is it like that kind of thing and what people's reactions are and what the negative aspects are like like the jailer said like is it is it only bad because you know you shouldn't be having sex with that type of person period or is it seen as bad holistically as like a moral code and stuff like that so well i think it's a very interesting way to to present it i appreciated it just because that particular type of violence on the page has exhausted the hell out of me and made me nope out of many books that i was enjoying just because i couldn't I was like, you know what? I think I'm good on this and have to put it mm-hmm. down. And it's kind of just, dis- it leads to a kind of disappointment because sometimes it snaps you all the way out of the world that's created. And because you mm-hmm. made a world that had certain things that had kind of parody and normativeness, I was impressed to see the ability to still put something that, it unfortunately, it's an expected part of what happens when you have certain types of attitudes and people and there's always going to be a bully with power who wants to take it somewhere that is unpalatable and so to see it Mm -hmm. used the way that you did but that it actually was more of a driving force to let you know about the personality types and the characters and the people rather than Mm -hmm. the trauma itself was really useful it also helped me start my list of who should die but (laughs) (laughs) well i mean the other half of it is also was foil to Terrain and Luca's relationship because mm-hmm. at different drafts Luca was a much worse person she was a much worse person <laughs> and then they were like yo you can't you can't you can't sell this book like this, <laughs> this is not <laughs> Luca, um, Luca is ruthless I would be afraid to see an, uh, a next tier level ruthless well I mean there's there's so much like that though like yeah. you think about the idea that it is very difficult to have a properly consensual relationship with people of such different power balances to the extent that if they had been in a relationship, it would have been a softer version, like soft, like when I say soft, I mean soft skills versus hard skills. So it's like soft violence um, as opposed to like knife violence. So part of it was, was also like, these are the different kinds of sexual violence potentials at play in colonialism as well. And how does that, how does Terrain navigate her way around these, between these? I also like sometimes that you expose the conversation of Terrain trying to figure out her best way to dance on the knife's edge. And the fact that she was aware that there was a possibility that she could potentially curry favor by trying to seek to become this person's lover. And to have that whole conversation, then to have you end it the way that you did, I was like, see... That's not what I thought was going to happen at all. And I really appreciated that because it put an awareness, one, it made me laugh out loud. But the other is it put an awareness on both parties' half that to a certain extent that there's a power differential that cannot be overcome. And Mm -hmm. it just is also was a reminder as this person's walking out the door, you know, hey, I stepped outside of our dynamic for a minute. 
don't use it against me because I'll definitely use it against you as the reminder. (laughs) (laughs) Like, wow. I was like, I feel I might be slightly identifying with the wrong person right now. But the way that you gave all these different layers about what trust could mean, what loyalty could mean, how you build loyalty, and that you've got this person who's sitting here straddling different theories of how you subjugate people to try to figure out the best way to get what she wants mm-hmm. without feeling like she's overtly subjugating people, but still mm-hmm. wanting the end result. I was like, you can't sit here and act like I want everybody to love me and fear me, but I'm going to pretend like it's not. Cause... <laughs> <laughs> and that was a fully fleshed out narrative. And sometimes when you get these books and you have such a dominant main character, who's got a little tinge of the chosen one running around, you know, the story flows in all directions that way. And then you just got the big bad hanging out over here, but the way that you intertwined and blended it together and made it kind of a jewel, a dual journey of discovery. And, and th- as this person is no longer able to just kind of remove themselves to it being the theory, you know, uh, terrain and the sands and other constricted people and conquered lands stop being a thought experiment. And, mm-hmm. you know, the pragmatism that can be handled at a distance versus the decisions that have to be made on the fly, the realities of saying, it's my throne, but this dude over here is sitting on it. So now you have this idea of like civil war. I was like, how many wars can't we have in one book? And it's Tarango fighting all of them. Oh, I don't know. You are not fair. <laughs> but that was the, that was, that's what made the opening that much more compelling. Because I kept going back to how I met this character. I kept going back to the first act. And then the, the repercussions and the consequences of the choices that were made for her in that act. And when she was like, I, I'm telling you, I should not have started reading this book again because I'm in my feelings all over again. Like the scene in the bookstore where there's a, you know, she poses a question and the answer made me have to close the book and walk away the first time. I was like, that's terrible. I knew it's probably true, but damn it. It's one of those things where you're like, at least it's not like, you know, your brother. Because uh, sometimes people, <laughs> I was like, I don't know how this could not be worse. I don't know. I actually went down that spiral of, how could this the thing that she just discovered be worse? <laughs> and then I was like, how do you how do you get past that? How do you overcome that? And to see this person mentally standing there pushing all of this away and then still trying to make a judgment call about how do I keep myself safe and say and and saying out loud things like I want to be on the side of who wins and having someone they trust say sometimes it's about how you win. I was like, okay. Okay. <laughs> The real question is here, can she fight everybody? Yes. The action is, <laughs> I was like, yes, I think the answer might be yes. But then you also realize later it's will she, you know, when you found your place because someone broke you down in a way that you were later convinced you needed to appreciate and you're pitted against this other person who has a goal and is willing to do anything in furtherance of that goal. But they still, I was like, this is some serious benevolent overseer allegory kind of like blossomed out and then woven in. I was like, I, I've never read anything like this. I read a lot. If I could show you my living room right now, you would understand. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it literally, like there are just whole sections on like uh, sci-fi wars, <laughs> dystopian war is a thing. I really like it. I, I appreciate the lessons that you can learn in the conflict 
of a person who's put themselves in this situation. So for you to resolve a significant number of the theories that exist in other war books within the first five pages and then send me on an entirely, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not conflicted of like, what do you do? Well, I kill people. Like you can almost, you can almost see the head drop the verbal, what I kill people. I was like, okay. I, okay. She's like, you know, things like that. I was like, okay. <laughs> That was one of my favorite lines. I am appreciative. It is, it's brilliant. It's so fantastic. I was like, because I was like, see, that's the kind of lack of conflict I need at a level. Like when things are going to get bloody, I don't need you second guessing. I need you wondering if you should shoot them or stab them. Not if you should kill them at all. That's not the place for you to have your existential crisis. I don't want you to do things. That's not how I like to see a story driven forward. Like if you're questioning mm-hmm. whether or not this person needs to die, I really prefer it for it to be because you think they might be useful later. Not because you don't think you shouldn't kill them. Yeah. I, I, I just I feel like we have enough of those stories and I think it also kind of goes into the permission aspect like who gets to make those flash decisions a man can certainly it's not really questioned I mean unless he's like supposed to be the tortured hero but like the other heroes just get to like go in blasters psh, 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 and whatever um, and so that was one of the things and, um, and also I mean Terrain is a as a person like she knows who she is like she's a fighter, she is a soldier, and she may not be aware of how high she can grow in that position, but she, and she also may not know who she is supposed to be a soldier for, that is her question, um, but she does know what she is here to do, like calling, so to like her vocation, she's very clear, yeah. I kill people, like <laughs> I'm good at it. I just felt like I was like, I want to see this conversation come to life because the attitude is on the page. You st- and then to later see this person having to try to restrain themselves and to see what their coping mechanisms for frustration and anger and bitterness are and the way that they've had to learn the hard way to be pragmatic. Those are things that I appreciate in this kind of character because they never let you forget that you're dealing with someone who was beaten into a kind of submission and had to learn acceptance under circumstances that could obliterate your entire personality, not just your your identity and you're connected to your past but your personality and you're very clear that Terrain has a personality the other I'm deliberately not saying people's names but like the other people <laughs> in her unit have very clearly defined personalities and the conflicts between them um, are the kind that exists with, within a friend group and but they also exist within uh, you know a group that's forced together and you never really know how strong is the glue between you Mm -hmm. like those are the places Mm -hmm. that I think are interesting to find the questions when she was wondering I'm not who they're looking to for guidance you know or what happens if I can't do this thing or none of them believe me when I say that this is what I'm trying to do or they don't appreciate it and that resonated in the sense in the very real now time setting when you're listening to people say you know we've all reached the point where we feel a little bit like Veruca Salt, don't care how, I want, <laughs> I want it now. I don't care about your war, I would like my freedom. Or I don't care if I die, I don't wanna do this. Fine, starve me, just let me be me and free mm-hmm. to make my own decisions. And if I die as a result of them, you know, that hits in a very particular place. And it hits in a different character than you usually get in kind of a wartime story. And I think having it 
not be a woman who's who's screaming and yelling and that's their point of sacrifice but having a woman being here saying oh so you okay with everybody else dying just just you okay (laughs) (laughs) you know so when you were setting up the dynamics between Mm -hmm. her core group how did you kind of decide or parse out where you wanted the voices to be or which voices did you think needed to be in that group to be heard to make your narrative work that issue I actually took at a very micro level, like just between the the friends. Mm-hmm. I like friend groups where they're held together, but all of them have a sort of different angle. And terrain sort of sits at the middle. So like we've got Pruitt on one side, Tibbo on the other, and neither of like both of them when they first met Terrain as children, they didn't like her. Uh, <laughs> like most people didn't because she was like this goody two shoes who was just excited for their little treats and was like really way too eager and way too excited to hang out with their new bosses. And so now, I mean, they're friends. They've been fighting and dying together for 20 years. So if not friends, they're family. And and you don't have to like your family, but you are often stuck with them, at least to a certain point, until you can get out by some way or another. And that's something that is part of the dynamics that I was exploring, but also just for the, like, the balance of letting them all have a chance to argue with each other as they learn more about what Terrain's plans are and what she wants. And then we're going to hear quite, quite a lot more if I have my way from uh, a certain lieutenant in book two. Uh, So despite their quietness in book one, uh, they're going to get a point of view in book two, going to get a lot more honest a lot more noisy about their opinions. Yes, I'm very excited. Okay. There's just something about the themes you decided to play with in this story. And there's really no other way to describe it because everything still had a, the lightness that it needs to keep a third party invested in something that they're reading. So I don't use the word play lightly. It's like everything works together and builds on each other, but there's also still these moments of play and humor and and, and dry wit. And you, 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 you wield sarcasm with a rapier and I don't mess with people who could do that just on a GP, but when you use it in your writing, but you manage to infuse it in so many different voices in the characters, that was me. That was like, nope, that's a master's PhD level of sarcasm (laughs) in the human writing all of these people. Uh, yeah, I think Angie was like, I was like, I think my email to her was in all capital letters. I would really like to talk to Stray about The Unbroken. I love this book. I'm obsessed with it. Okay, thanks. Bye. And <laughs> wrote that at the point when I got to what was really at the root of your magic system. I was like, shut the hell up. So let's talk magic a little. When you were building and thinking about how you wanted to use your magic um, of the uncivilized, mm-hmm. I love, I do love that you kind of made that an overt thing in these books because it is really a hallmark of colonialization and imperialism when we civilized savage masses or you brought them to Mm -hmm. rationality so when you were kind of taking a step away from that and then thinking of a world where a part of not giving up who you were was refusing to abandon your god and the lessons that you learned and the you know and all of the native culture to you what what were you kind of blending together to make that um i mean i think part of it is is the idea that religion especially like non-judeo-christian religion is uh, is uncivilized uh, in some way uh, or another Mm -hmm. and the fact that that was 
how colonialism was spread and it continues to be spread to this day. And like I was talking about soft, soft violence. And so like missionaries and that idea going to spread Christianity throughout the world um, to the, what did you call them? The, un, the seeming sav- savages yes. of masses or something like that. And um, yeah, just like the idea that you can fix these people by bringing them over to your belief system. Um, and then I decided that I wanted the religions to have magic. And I already knew that, you know, Balladare was going to have its thing. Uh, and so as I was developing the magic system, I knew that they were going to be a-religious. Um, and it wasn't until later that I was like, no, 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 they're not a-religious. They're like squashed it down. Like they had it, but in their pursuit of what they now call righteousness, but at the time was actually just like fear and stuff. And it's more complicated. We'll discover some more later. The teasing. The teasing, (laughs) But yeah, so that ended up being how the setup happened. As far as the magic itself, part of it was a little bit regional. Part of it was based on historical, historical for the, the, the novel world. Um, historical relationships so and then part of it was also like inspiration from some of the earliest doctors like where did that technology come from well it wasn't Europe so (laughs) as I sort of figured out what magics I wanted to use or magic powers I wanted to exist I thought about you know colonialism as resource taking and if magic is a resource trade is also how resources were passed along at some point and so there's always a point where they're like Trading is not enough. We want to take. And so when did that happen and what happened before? And so um, a lot of this is just like some of the um, iceberg stuff that is in my head, but isn't actually like super, super prevalent in the book. But like um, a lot of Baladar and med- medical technology, though they, they say, oh, we've got all this me- medical technology, blah, blah, blah. We wash our hands. Like that's stuff that they learned from... <laughs> Um, the Kazali before they started being enemies and so we've got like the Kazali their magic system is based on like bodies human body and and we've got the Targans and the many-legged who have their animal situation going on and you know they're all sort of they're things that in my head anyway they made sense based on the like why this kind of religion would develop in this place and I mean, then the other stuff is like, it's, you know, it's gods and magic. I don't, I'm not a god. I don't know. It's, if I were a god, I'd just decide where I want to give my magic to. Like, whatever. Poof. I mean, you're the so. writer, so you get to be the god <laughs> of this world, so it works, right? Well, I mean, that even makes it more fascinating because you see all these stuff. Like, you may have feel like these are only just iceberg things that are in your head, but you've clearly seeded each of these kind of steps in your, in your story. Um, so when you have one character who's talking about, you know, who gets an ambassador, who doesn't, and the natureship of relationships. And you start to feel like, I'm like, well, where's that coming from? Because clearly you have a very defined idea about how you deal with, you know, neighboring states and trade routes. And, you know, uh, Luca occasionally will talk about trade. And, you know, um, she makes a comment early on about, you know, people are like, well, we should just leave this place behind. And she's like, do you know what we get from here? 
no. And, and then, you know, the first thought that pops in my head is I'm like, well, why don't you just ask for it instead of taking it? And then you're just like, oh, at some point, y'all probably just took every Okay, okay. So you may not, you know, it may be like in your head canon, but it's, it's in here. And it's obvious enough for you to catch it. So that's why I said all these little mysteries that run in the story, um, you start to ask yourself these questions. And they those questions are as for the reader. They're also then slowly you start to see the end result of those in the choices that Terrain has to make, you know, when she's in the hallway and she's like, well, you could kill me or you could talk to the one person who don't want to kill all y'all. I mean, those your choices right now. And <laughs> so you see the logic in there. It's like, you know, where she's like, oh, this person is like me and they're going to only respond in this way. And mm -hmm. so you start to see the slow development and the turn from how you make those strategies in a pitch battle to stay alive versus a one-on-one -on -one situation where diplomacy is supposed to win. But she's like, oh, no, I can still threaten you. I'm just not supposed to stab you right now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so as you start to realize and see this person learn to wield verbal violence, which is one of my most favorite things. I mean, you know, like I said, she knows what she's good at and yeah. there are some things she's not good at yet. Like, yeah. you know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. But you didn't do the oops, I'm clumsy thing. So thank you. You know, it's appreciative. <laughs> it's so appreciative that this isn't uh, one of those stories where you have this person who has that one skill and then you spend the rest of the story going, why are people trying to use you beyond your abilities? Uh, so for you to have Luca acknowledge that, oh, there are factors that I didn't take into consideration when I put together my grand plan of conquering and fixing the problem. Shit. You know, that you actually put a tangible oh shit moment in there for the person who considers himself that their greatest weapon is their mind. Um, and then you have this other person have this moment like, oh, this is just a different kind of violence. I know how to do this. I'm better at this than most people. And then to see them learn to develop and wield those tools. And this other person have to start looking at people as beyond simple weapons that they can bend to their purpose and then also have to accept that they're totally okay with subjugation if it gets them what they want um mm -hmm. and and why so i don't know if as much as is below is is the only the iceberg as you think it is <laughs> you know as someone who's read the book four times <laughs> by accident well, I can only hope that everybody will give it uh, as much as much consideration as you have. But you get a lot of it on the first read. That's what makes it so compelling, you know? It's it's one of the things why I ended up getting obsessed with this type of story. It's like, okay, so um, you do get hints of there's like, I'm willing to create this other place for people to belong where you can be... Uh, you know, somebody who can cross the divide. But then this person is saying, you've taken everything from me that I would need for those people to still accept me. You don't even know what they mm -hmm. call me, you know? And, and for that person to have to hear and accept that the people they come from consider them to be lost. Um, mm -hmm. And then what they want to do about that, if there's anything. And what mm -hmm. they still continue to reject. But as they're going through all of these lessons, you're still moving us inexorably closer to, to war and to pitch battles and to battles of the mind and magic and a coup if necessary is it's it's like come on come on yeah so i don't really 
I didn't mean to hold you hostage this long. I'm sorry. I just <laughs> talking, uh, but yeah, it's like when you're when you're kind of putting this together, how many books do you think you would get? I mean, I know how many I want, but actually, so I'm, I'm contacted for the trilogy. Mm -hmm. uh, as I was writing it, though, I kind of had in mind just a duology with um, like a little prequel, some something to hang out with the old guard um, back when Cantic first comes and she meets the apostate and that kind of fall out i really wanted to do that and then you know a little a little like well i don't i don't really do happy love stories and i mean we all we know where the apostate and her wife end up yeah, yeah we know where they end up but they have when they first like they have moments of happiness and when they were younger you know like so they, at this point they've been together for decades but you know they had their turbulence and stuff and if I were to end their book, they would not end up together because of where the apostate goes off to wherever right. in her youth. And so I really wanted to write that story and just sort of like the friendship of the three older women and the enemy ship, that bitter vengeance. But yeah. I mean, if you would like to Anthony Ryan this series, just know I buy all of his <laughs> books and then the spinoff novellas that he has subterranean press to do. I apparently pre-order them in my sleep and buy those as well. I just found out I got like notifications of things coming to my house. I don't remember buying, but they're all, yeah. But that's the other book that kind of came to mind is, uh, and his book is kind of written more with a third party narrator where, uh, it's like somebody from the chorus or, you know, a druid is giving you the big, huge, literal song mm. of his life and then it jumps mm -hmm. um but you still get that same sensibility without the pretension um it's a little pretension <laughs> just a little um but uh but you still get that same sensibility and when you get dropped into to battle and you get dropped into war and you get all these things fighting together i can definitely see this on the screen so somebody somebody needs to give me a movie and let you write it because I don't really trust anybody else not to fuck these people up. So you also have to write your screenplay. I'm just saying. We'll throw that I'm in. I'm game. I'm game. We'll just kind of throw that out there to be manifest. <laughs> we'll see what happens. I haven't I haven't outlined anything, but I've definitely written like little sketches of short stories and stuff about different characters who existed in those times. Um, and one who I keep trying to figure out a way to bring him in. He kind of links the apostate and the general in a sort of similar way. But I'm not going to talk too much about him until I can figure out Fair. how to squeeze him in. Fair. Otherwise, I... he's just going to be like some little apocrypha. When you are trying to write, I saw some of the Zoom before I got kicked out for Signal where you were talking about writing a second while in quarantine. So <laughs> are you a full outliner or do you at some point just kind of pick up the pen and go? Um, sometimes that happens. Mm -hmm. But I, I have usually, at least for this this book i i have outlined at least through the book if i stick to it or not by the time i actually get to the writing part who knows i usually do another outline like before each like after i get feedback mm -hmm. i'll re-outline and start the draft again depending i mean like for the bigger revisions once i've had a revision i know what i want to be doing but i need the outline because otherwise you know i'll forget different things like i'll forget the things that i wanted to happen in this new version of this scene otherwise i'll just end up rewriting the scene the same way i wrote it the first time and that's not that would be the purpose so that's true and so initially how i ended up becoming an outliner was because i started outlining my revisions and so then the next time i had to write a book i was like well why would we just 
why don't we just do that from the beginning? You're going to have to rewrite it anyway, so. Okay, yeah, that's a logic I have not acquired. I still only outline my revisions. <laughs> but it's usually because I'm a woke up in the middle of the night and write everything down, then go back to sleep and then wake up and write it again because... That's... Oh, see, but I do that too. I still do that, and I have a I have an entire notes file for each book of scenes that like come to me in the night, and I'll like wake up and I'll type them in a haze or whatever. And um, a lot of good lines. I mean, I've had short stories that I even <laughs> wrote that way. Um, just like half delirious, just writing the rest of the scenes. I'm like, this is perfect. This is it. This is everything. Okay. Good night. Okay. Um, okay. I mean. It's nice to know that some habits carry over and they're just a thing that happens to people. You're like, I have to get this out of my head right now. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people who may not know you or may know you from another place, you were one of the co-editors of one of my favorites. <laughs> and you guys just won some awards, did you not? That just yes. Happened, right? Yes. Still soaked. Yeah. So stoked. So what made you decide that that was a gig that you wanted to do while you're also trying to write? your book i just like editing uh honestly and it's a lot it's a lot of it's a lot of work and that is sometimes a conflict but i just i like to do it you know maybe a little easier to do other people's work i mean even like when i was younger and doing like you know like community writing forums and stuff like that was, i always liked doing it so i mean that was more like like deeper developmental edits and crit critique partnering and stuff like that but when it's not my story, I can see very, very clearly like, oh, well, this is not working because of this. And this part is great. And if you want to increase the greatness of this part, then you need to do this. And if it's my story, like, no, I don't know. Like, I, I just, I really like, yeah, I don't know. Okay. I mean, sometimes it's just a natural skill set people have. My entire job was in regulatory. My entire, like, my superpower is being able to, one, take big, huge tomes of information and to distill it into something someone can use without ever having to read that information but feeling like they own it. But the other is, you know, if you don't back me into a corner, I can find you a way out of whatever your problem is. My mother calls it my super magic power that she had to curb to keep me from building a criminal empire. And that's the entire sentence of how she describes it. So I'm like, thank well, you. Well, maybe I will give you a call when I get those edit notes back. I mean, <laughs> you can find me. But that, that's one of the reasons why I think I really enjoyed your book, because you could tell that even though there was thought that went into it and that there was like a, a deep skill set and an, an understanding of what you wanted to give and where you were coming from, this story still, I mean, this the nose plays. Like it's like from beginning to end, it plays. It's like you got people to love, you got people to hate, you got people to be conflicted about. You've got a country that you really want to see free, but then you also like, could we kill these people before we free them? Um, you've got an empire that you really hope ends up in the right hands, but you're not too sure what's the right hands, but you just know it's not the dude who was willing to let everybody die while he ran to go sit in the hills and you <laughs> and you get all these impulses about these people correctly and then you've got her group of friends and I think the way you describe it is perfect you know they're a family you don't always have to like all your family but you still feel like you need to be there for your family and if anybody gets to punch your family it's you no one gets to stab your brother except you but if, exactly if they need your brother stabbed it's a conversation you might be open to <laughs> <laughs> Probably as of right now, of all the books that I have read for March, this is my favorite debut. But of the books oh, that I have you. read for fantasy so far, quarter one of 2021, this is my favorite book. Like, 
hands down. Awesome. Thank you so much. Female main character, female big bad, like council of female badasses, no obnoxious caricatures or dumb men, war, mayhem, attitude, magic. There are a lot of people who got this book one clicked into their carts by me. That's what happens when I have Excellent. a password and know your Excellent. And you, you know, or you shop at my local indie and I know your PayPal password, which means you just bought yourself a book. What? I went shopping for people. Congratulations. I mean, it's what I do. I push books. This has been I Talk Shit and Read, and I hope you enjoyed my interview with C.L. Clark. Come back again soon. I'll have some more book reviews, interviews, recommendations, and other general book talk because, well, it's what I do.